Every musician should know the basics of recording in the studio, and we're going to talk about that next. Hello and welcome to episode number 26 of the Musician Toolkit. My name is David Lane, and it is great to be with you once again. So one of the tools that I mentioned on episode one of this podcast, if you're a musician who wants to be the most well-rounded musician you can, if you want to be the best musician you can be, there are 21 tools that you need to at least explore and try to develop as best as you can. And one of those tools we haven't really talked about yet is experience with studio production and music technology. If you're a musician in 2023 or later, depends on when you're checking this out, Hello in the future if you're checking this out at a later date. There is a high percentage chance that you're going to need to record you playing your instrument, if nothing else. If you're a composer, it's basically inexcusable now that you not have the ability to record your music and present it at least as a demo. But depending on what type of composer you are, you may need to actually present a finished product that someone is going to use for a situation such as a film score or a video game or, or um, tracks accompaniment in the theater. Like you could be a pianist and someone might want you to record a track. Uh, a vocalist might want you to record a track for them to sing along to. I did a film score in 2020 and it was the pandemic. And uh, I couldn't exactly let go to a recording studio in, in that particular year of the pandemic. Uh, and I needed a, a live cellist and I needed a guitarist. And again, I couldn't bring them here to record. I couldn't go to the studio. So I was thankful that they knew how to record themselves in good quality and send it to me. They were able to do that while listening to a click track. And I was able to take that and mix it together with my tracks to form a final product. Maybe you play an orchestral instrument or band instrument and uh, you're not necessarily doing a video, but someone wants you to record yourself with reasonable quality for a, a demo, for an audition. Who knows what, what the situation might be. Or maybe you want to record yourself and put it out there on streaming platforms for people to enjoy your music. If it's a big project, you should take it to a professional. And probably, honestly, if it's a medium project, you should take it to a professional. But wouldn't it be great if you could understand what the engineer is saying to you and what they're asking and maybe why they're asking it? It is always great. It's just like if you go to a car mechanic. It's always better if you know a little bit about cars and how they work so that you, you understand the language of the mechanic as you are, of course, doing business with this person. Doesn't doesn't mean that you have to have the ability nor the interest to fix the car yourself. But if it's a small project, it is greatly worth your while to know how to do this stuff yourself. And there is a lot to learn, and we are barely going to scratch the surfaces in this episode. But if you have no experience at all, with recording or you've tried it before and it just hasn't worked out, you don't really know the language, well then this is a must listen to episode. I'm going to be talking today to my friend and colleague, Liz May. As we'll mention, Liz is equally at home as a live sound engineer and a recording engineer. 
and uh, we are going to focus on the recording side today. She runs a sound studio called Sound Lizard, with two Zs, out of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. As a live engineer, she is all over the United States, but as a recording engineer, she has recorded many, many albums of different types for different artists. So I asked her today to come to talk to us about the basics. We're going to talk about what kind of microphone you need for your instrument. We're going to talk about recording techniques with that microphone. We're going to talk about what other kind of gear you need and maybe what kind of minim- what minimal amount of plugins you need to give your sound a nice little finish before you send it off in what capacity. We'll even talk about how do you send it off, what kind of audio formats are there, and what is what is best for each situation. So it's a lot of information packed into an hour-long interview or about that. So let me go ahead and share with you my conversation with Liz May. Liz, thank you for joining me today to talk about the basics of studio recording, studio production. Thanks for having me. I was thinking about our conversation that we were going to have today, uh, last night, and it, it hit me in a way, I'm surprised it didn't hit me before, that there is, this is a really big topic. It's almost like <laughs> if if I wanted to have a podcast on composing, it's like there, there's no way that I could explain everything I learned in six years of schooling for just that <laughs> in a single episode you know this an hour or less you know so i know that we're not going to we're only going to be able to get started on this but i do think that that's one of the tools that every musician should have not to say that they should be skilled on your level as far as you know being an engineer but to have some understanding of what's going on with the recording and mixing process if for nothing else to be able to talk to someone like you or if they have a demo project you know something small that you know maybe they don't want to you know, invest in the time, you know, for someone else's time to do that. So I thought we'd just kind of go over that. But let's start off with just a little bit about you, uh, who you are. I know that um, you're you're one of the few people that I know of, um, not that I know a lot of engineers, who have both foots in the live sound and the recorded sound world. I know some, I know plenty of people who do one or the other, but you seem to be comfortable in both. So Tell us a little more about yourself. Sure. Um, so first and foremost, um, I'm a performer. Well, not really a performer, but I'm a piano player. So like that's kind of where my background is, is being a musician. Um, and from that, I, you know, experimented with recording some of my own things um, when I was a lot younger. And then I realized I kind of enjoyed learning more on the technical side. Um, and I would say like, the live production side of things, it was a lot easier to kind of get your foot in the door just because everybody pretty much feels like always needs some sort of sound reinforcement, you know, whether it's a musical or, um, you know, just a presentation or, you know, a a running event where somebody needs to speak or whatever. So getting into that side of things, I kind of fell into that. Um, Whereas the studio was really what I was interested in and so I, um, I ended up going to school specifically for recording, uh, knowing that I kind of already was gaining a lot of experience in the other areas. Um, and I would say recording engineering, um, it's a lot more critical. You have to be a lot 
I mean, not, and it's not downplaying live sound at all, but when it comes to the mixing and the recording and the, the, the finessing of the sound, it's so much more, um, you really dial into every single like tiny little component when you're in the studio and in live sound, there's a different strategy. You have to be able to troubleshoot really quickly and you have to be able to like the show still has to happen. And so both of those are incredibly important skill sets in each respective field, but they also cross over into the other side where I feel like because I do so much quick troubleshooting in live sound, I can move really quickly in the recording studio and not waste anybody's time and money and vice versa, because I do such critical editing and mixing in the studio. It makes me a better live sound engineer because I'm really focused on all those specific details. Right. Um, yeah. So I love the components of both live and recording. And I, I definitely encourage, I encourage all of our students um, to always keep their, their options open in both of those areas because um, something like a pandemic might happen and live industry might, you know, evaporate for a year and a half. Um, and, and vice, you know, there's always going to be shifts in that, that might change. When I think about the pros and cons of each, like what, what, what would make it more stressful? What would make it less stressful? Uh, you know, I think, you know, anybody listening to live sound, maybe a little bit more forgiving because they know that it might not be like all your fault. It might be, there might be some things going on, you, you know, um, just with ambient noise and so forth, things you, you can't control that you could control in a studio. Uh, and also most people will hear it one time, you know, and that's when they're there, you know? So, uh, but when you're doing an album, especially if it's an album, people like they may listen to it dozens to hundreds of times, you know, and, and start hearing things that you're trying to listen for in advance, you know? So, um, so that's, uh, of course, you know, as you have done, any any musician can choose to go the path of an engineer to become someone who specializes in that. But I think what I want to do today is uh, this would be a great to talk about recorded sound. So things that we do in a recording environment. And, you know, I, I think two two things that I like to kind of keep in mind as we go. One is musicians going into a studio to work with someone like you what are some things that they can know about the process and maybe some things they can do to have a smoother more efficient time but then also for those who are you know they just want to make a demo like maybe they're a composer and and, and by the way this is something you know if you are a composer I think there's very few mediums now in which you 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 can be excused in 2023 for not knowing anything about some kind of studio production. You know, it's like almost anything I compose, someone's going to want a demo, some kind of a mock-up. And, uh, and if I'm doing a film score, it's got to sound like a finished product. It can't just be a crude <laughs> demo. And, unless, you know, I know that we've budgeted for a live orchestra, in which case I will let studio engineer take care of that and and i'll go in to conduct you know and so forth or perform whatever the requirement is but if it's a midi only and with like one audio one or two instruments at most i usually do that at home so when i want to talk to that type of person who wants to make some small scale projects and but has been intimidated because it is an intimidating world it's like the 
there's a whole language. <laughs> In fact, I was just refreshing my memory with a YouTube video of like audio terms. And I was like, you know, there's, there's things like um, frequency spectrum and, uh, <laughs> you know, just so, so like positronics. And I mean, just all these kinds of terms that, that get thrown around that it can be hard to know what's, what's what. So I, th I thought maybe we could just kind of introduce everybody to just some basics, you know, so I did want to make a passing mention of MIDI recordings. So I don't think we'll talk about that today, but you know, a lot of like what I do is MIDI recording. And I think, um, especially for composers, you'll be doing a lot of that. So we're going to have at least one, probably more future episodes designated to that. But so I want to talk to like all of the instrumentalists, you know, people who play acoustic instruments and also vocalists, you know, when it comes into recording. So we'll go on from there. Um, I guess let's just start off with what's some of the minimum amount of gear that you have to have to just get started recording. I guess, I guess like we could start off with the obvious. We have a, <laughs> we have a microphone here and they come in all types and maybe we'll come back to that in a moment, but yeah, we have a microphone, but what else uh, comes to mind that you think are just kind of minimum requirements? Well, one of the things that, um, I tell people is you're only as good as your weakest link. Mm -hmm. And so whether the weakest link is the performance, whether the weakest link is the microphone, the preamp, the software, whatever it is, that's the best it can be. So um, that's not to say you have to, you know, spend millions and millions of dollars to be able to do like what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But it does mean like, I, I get, asked a lot of times like oh I just bought this like $50 microphone and you know like I, I'm really excited I'm going to do all these great things with it and I'm like well you're going to sound like you're singing into a $50 microphone like mm -hmm. um and so and and it's not that you need to spend thousands of dollars on every single microphone um one of the things that I strategize is the appropriate tool for the job and so you know, part of being an engineer is being educated in different types of microphones and how they best replicate what you're recording. And so both in the studio and in live is, you know, how can we capture whatever that sound is the best possible way? Um, so the microphone is a really important tool mm -hmm. that needs to be thought through and be researched. And, you know, everybody's pushing their own all the manufacturers push their, their microphone based on like, oh, this would sound great on this, you know, when, mm -hmm. you know, the whole thing with engineering is experimenting, you know, like, well, maybe I want to put, put a kick drum mic in a tuba and it sounds amazing. And, and it does. And so a lot of that is, is just trying different things out. So I always tell people, you know, go to, you know, go to like a guitar center, go to uh, a place where you can test out different types of microphones because a microphone that sounds really good on your voice doesn't necessarily sound good on somebody else's voice and you might buy a microphone that gets all these rave reviews and then realize it's really not doing a whole lot to enhance my my vocals um or my instrument and so i think finding a way to experiment with that and and that microphone can be a really key piece my favorite microphone that I still use today is one of the first like big microphones that I purchases that I made and if you buy good quality and you take good care of it they'll last you for a very long time so it's not like software it's gonna go outdated um so you know getting a getting um 
understand the difference between dynamics and condensers. I don't know how, how deep you want to go into all this, but. Right. Right. Um, uh, so, uh, well, let's just kind of take this. So uh, just uh, yeah. for transparency, I'm recording on a Shure SM7B uh, dynamic uh, corduroy mic. So, and this was, this was marketed towards me fairly or unfairly as ideal for podcasting. <laughs> and one of the things is that the mic by itself doesn't do any good. Now I'll have to like, share photos of my other stuff because i can't maneuver the cameras and i can't move some of the gear um but this microphone is very low signal so it's connected into what's called a cloud lifter uh which basically boosts the signal and out of that i go into my audio interface which has a preamp and it has phantom power engaged and now that goes to my computer so you know this is a this is a thing that that I think it's it was intimidating to me and it's still when I say it out loud it's it it sounds very complicated but the whole idea of uh signal flow you know just mm -hmm. you know someone watching this video uh, or listening to this podcast can imagine they basically there's my sound there's me speaking to this mic and you hear it in your speakers but but like I just said that it's going to a cloud lifter to an amp with phantom power to my computer which is then getting processed through um some sometimes some effects like compression or eq then being bounced <laughs> to a file which then gets uploaded to the internet which then gets downloaded to your phone that you then get to hear and it's just a it's it's a really amazingly complex route you know yeah, especially because we're now in this uh in such a digital world and so we have to really think about um things in terms of transducing and types mm -hmm. of energy and going from acoustical energy to electrical energy to digital you know mm -hmm. ones and zeros and and then it gets reversed right so then right. when it plays back it's going back to electrical voltage and then it's outputting acoustical energy back into the air. And so when, yeah, it, it becomes a whole process of like having to think about things we can't actually see and like, how is that actually being processed and, and manipulated? Right. Yep. Now, so again, just trying to think of the general audience, you know, probably like a lot of people play an abandoned orchestral instrument. So let's just maybe maybe exclude percussion. I feel like drums kind of get their own category. But uh, if you play a woodwind brass or string instrument, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like you might want to limit your search to condenser mics. Is that would you recommend that or are there are there or are there exceptions to that um are we talking about recording or live sound yeah just like recording your in you know you playing your instrument yeah so um usually in the studio you would use all condenser mics for most everything mm -hmm. the only time that dynamics really come into play like you said tends to be drums or um maybe on a bass cabinet or something else that's got like a really um loud transient you might use uh, dynamic mics for, but condenser mics are going to have a much more um, accurate response to what we hear. And yeah. dynamic mics, they're great for excluding sound around us. They're very isolating, very directional. Um, and condenser mics are going to be much more sensitive, uh, but they're going to do a better accurate representation of our, like our brilliance and our higher frequencies. So I always see like condenser mics over a drum kit for 
symbols and things like that. Um, so as somebody, you know, plays an instrument into the air, it's going to capture that sort of natural decay that we as humans hear. Right. And I know, and again, I know this is a really complicated topic, but I'm just trying to think of some basics that I've learned along the way. Um, there's uh and there's I know that everything has a, a term you know the engineers use um and and I'm forgetting what they what they call this but oh it's proximity proximity effect mm -hmm. yeah so dynamic uh well really anything that has so you want to talk about polar patterns right so pickup patterns uh uh every mic uh has a a, a way that it wants to pick up right? Yeah. So most are directional, meaning if you point them at the source, they're mostly going to pick up what they're pointed at, and they're going to reject a lot of what's behind them. Um, and so the those by being more directional, it actually creates what you're calling proximity effect, which means as you get closer to it, your low of your voice or whatever your instrument is gets louder. And yeah. as you pull away from it, it, it kind of rolls off a little bit. Whereas if you were had that in an omnidirectional pattern, meaning it picks up equally all the way around the microphone, you would not have that. And so that would not be there. Right. And, you know, right now I'm probably about two inches from my mic. Uh, and sometimes when I'm recording interviews like this, I sit back way like this and I do much of the conversation like that. And then I hear that and I'm like, oh, I got to boost, boost the gains on this because it got really soft. It doesn't sound that good. And um, so a good microphone will do a good job if you use it correctly. And the other thing, like, I mean, maybe this is not the same thing, but um, I know that a lot of times like guitarists or, you know, anybody who's recording from an amp will sometimes think about, do they want it close or do they want it further away? And it seems like if you get it further away, you get a little bit more like ambience room noise and things like that if you get it closer you get a little bit more of a pure sound pure signal and i, I don't and i assume that that's kind of similar to instruments i one, one of the things that i struggled with i don't play french horn anymore but um i never had anyone to guide me of like when i was trying to do demos on french horn i could never get the sound right without hearing like the clicking of my valves and so forth. And I did, and I would try putting the mic far away and I didn't like that sound. I get it too close and I'd hear all the machine noise. And so like, well, I, let's just take brass players as kind of a little uh, template. Like if someone was playing, wanted to record themselves playing trumpet or French horn, what recommendations would you have for just doing a demo with that? Sure. Um, so I think I'll kind of, generalize this a little bit but um in general you have to think about the way the instrument makes noise yeah. and a lot of times we assume it's coming out of a bell or we assume it's you know it's um it, the, whatever the end point is right where the air is yeah. escaping the instrument when in reality the sound is in maybe the entire instrument so in the case of a trumpet, obviously, like most of it is going to be coming out of the bell, but in the case of like a reed instrument or um, a flute, those are resonations that are actually like the entire instrument. And so sometimes it's 
we get the mics too close. And so we pick up a lot of the, the breath and the, the key noises and the things that like, if we were in the room listening to wouldn't bother us as much. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things with microphones, especially directional microphones is when you put them close to a source, that's like taking one of your ears and putting it right where that microphone is. Mm-hmm. And we don't really hear that way. We hear binaurally, you know, we hear from, reflections that are happening in the space, but we also have psychoacoustics that are happening that tell us that's where the sound is coming from. And so it creates direction. And so microphones are trying to sort of replicate the way we hear, but we we have to understand that it's it's not a mechanical, just a mechanical thing with human hearing. And so it's kind of hard to do. Um, but so in the case of instruments, when I record them, a lot of times what I do is I'll have a closer mic not too close, but a close enough microphone to the source. Again, I'll put my ears where I feel like the sound is the best. And I might change the direction of it. I might make it a little bit what we call off axis, where instead of it facing directly where I want it, I might kick it slightly off. Um, I might use something like a ribbon mic, which actually has a bi-directional pickup pattern. And that picks up a little more of the space as well as the direction of the instrument. And that creates a little more natural, almost that binaural um, hearing sound. Um, but a lot of times I'll also throw a second microphone, you know, five, eight feet away. And I'll, I'll use that to sort of capture the decay. And when you, when it, there is some mathematics to this and yes. phase relationship, not, you know, the, the technical side of this, but when you blend those together, you get a little bit of that more natural replication of the sound in the space and assuming you have a good space that you're recording in. Um, So that's my idea, whether it's a string instrument, whether it's a brass instrument, whatever it is, um, those are sort of my go-to points. Right. Uh, It's fascinating when you get into really high quality recording sessions, you know, it's like, like, you know, you, you can, in theory, you know, get a mic for the drums, but I know that most people want to put a mic on the bass. They want to put a mic on the, you know, near the snare and they want to blend all this together. And, and it could be, you know, multiple mics and you have to put it, you know, so they're not getting hit by the, by the drummer, but it's picking up everything. And so, yeah, that can, so, so this is, this is something where you can go all in or you can go in small now for for singers what kind of mic just for recording purposes would you what type of mic would you recommend um definitely a condenser mic for vocalists um and if you don't have the ability to do like a pop filter um a trick i used to tell people or will tell people sometimes is um if you take your mic and tilt it like slightly up so -hmm. that when you're talking and this works good for like live singers sometimes you'll see them roll it a little bit when they're when they get a little bit um, punchy. And and so it takes a little bit of that aggressiveness off of the diaphragm of the microphone um, yeah. so that you don't get a whole lot of like harsh, like plosives and, you know, pops and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and then the distance to the mic is important because like we were saying with proximity. So I always tell people, you know, kind of like looking at like, you know, thumb to pinky kind of distance. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the pop filters in the middle of it, you know, account for it with the pop filter because uh, it's the distance to the mic it's not to the pop filter okay thank you it's very helpful um 
Okay, so the microphone will allow you to make the sound, but it's got to go somewhere. So I guess some other pieces of gear that we can discuss is, I mean, I I guess you can get standalone units still. I, I haven't looked for them in a very long time, but, you know, the, I I know like for podcasting, there's a thing called like a Roadmaster Pro, which is like, uh, you know, it looks like an, well, it is an interface, but it also records and it can record to the cloud or it can record on board to like a little i don't know what you call it it's not a flash drive but it's but it's something you know that you can you can take out and you could put it you know export it somewhere else so so there are still options i think out there if you don't want to use a computer at all but i think for a lot of people using a computer might be simplest and you can buy like i use logic pro which I'm amazed at what it can do. It's a $300 app. And, you know, it's like half the, half the price that Finale, the notation program was when I did it. And I, and I think Logic does at least as much, if not more. Um, you can, of course, spend more money on, and these are called uh, DAWs or, you know, DAWs with, with digital audio workstations. And you can do that. But Mac offers you GarageBand. There's Audacity. There's some... If you just need some place for a signal to go, you know, I I think there are ways that you can not spend so much on that. But but you know, obviously, like if you go to a recording studio, I know like this, I mean, the standard used to be Pro Tools, but but I have you know, like when I because I use Logic when I've uh, when I've done a couple of recording sessions, they pulled up logic <laughs> there, you know, to kind of keep it in the same, the same system, you know, so a lot of, a lot of your studios have multiple facets of that. So I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add to that on just terms of like having a place to record to. I think um, all the different dolls that are out there have things they do best and yeah. things they don't do as well. And so I think a lot of times it depends what it is you're doing with them. For me, Pro Tools is a no-brainer because I can do so much manipulation with it, but it's a bit overwhelming for people that really don't understand, you know, how to use all those tools. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's why they call it Pro Tools. Um, yep. But <laughs> uh, whereas I think Logic is a bit more user-friendly. Um, mm -hmm. I think that it specifically resonates with musicians because of the ability to do arranging and um, easy sort of um, music mapping and things like that. And so I think that's one reason you see a lot of Logic Pro right now, um, right. more so even than, I mean, yes, the price is, you know, maybe better because we don't have to do the subscription thing, but I'm sure it will be coming uh, yeah. if it's not here yet. Right. <laughs> uh, it seems like everybody is moving in that direction. My plugins are becoming subscription now, which is very frustrating because mm -hmm. uh, when you own a lot of plugins, it can get quite expensive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I do think that, you know, I, I've got students who love using Fruity Loops because mm -hmm. they can build, you know, it's it's a it's a they can arrange, you know, they can they can play with different sounds and things like that. Um and so I think each each one of those dolls presents different pros and cons. Right. Uh, and kind of, I guess it's almost understood, but, you know, for anything that you're adding, you, you do want to check the performance capabilities of your computer. So if you're not doing major sessions, you know, maybe you don't need like a Mac Pro, you don't need 
you know anything i mean i use uh, i'm using a mac studio which is fairly new it's it's better than a mac mini it's not quite a mac pro but it's uh you know it's got uh it's maxed out on its ram and it's you know got the m1 chip so for what i do it's more than sufficient you know but uh you know there are probably some projects that would tax it and make me wish that i had you know especially if i was uh, i guess you know doing graphic design or something like that or a lot of intensive you know, feature film editing, I would probably want something a little bit more than that. So, so it's kind of good to maybe inquire around what similar musicians use, you know, and just kind of see what do you actually need, you know, and what are you willing to invest in? If, if, if recording is a big part of what you're doing, probably want to spend a little bit more money on the computer. And with that uh, audio interface, which are actually probably half the price they were when I graduated college and started getting into things is like I I think about some of the ways I used to have have to get uh the rack mountable interfaces and very you know very costly but you know you you can get single input or dual input audio interfaces for really just a couple of hundred dollars now and you know of course you can go up from there but but you do need that to kind of get again from the microphone to the computer you know, to kind of get that, but what, what would you say are some good things to include on as a, maybe a checklist uh, again, for kind of people doing a demo recording? Uh, well, let's, let's do it two parts. I'm going to, uh, let's just start with this. So for, for the people doing demo recordings, like at home, you want to do the best you can with the gear you have, like what is just a checklist of some things that you should check before you start recording? talking about like processes or gear well a pro pro a processes you know specific. okay yeah um okay well i think especially when people are doing home demos one of the um dangers is that everything's so comfortable and you know there's no time constraint you know there's no pressure of somebody else like you know spending their time waiting on you and so I think a lot of times people like spin their wheels um, yeah. when they're working on a demo, because um, I used to tell people like, I have red light syndrome, you know, like if I know I'm recording, like there's anyhow, there's just, you know, all these things going through your mind. And, and sometimes it's really hard to just like focus and Zen out and, and really be like in that moment. Um, and we've kind of really, gotten away from the recording studios where it's like you it was like destination recording where that's all you do for a week and your creative space and so I think a lot of times when people do demos it's like oh I'll turn on the computer and I'll record something really fast and then they, they kind of just bumble through it really like a little unprofessionally um yeah. and so I think with a demo approaching it in a similar way that you would if you were going to a recording studio, make sure you're rehearsed, make sure that you've got your lyric sheet, make sure you've got your plan. Um, and yes, you have the ability to be able to start and stop and you know do all those things, but putting yourself still in that mindset and still in that creative zone, I think helps people to stay on task. Um, because when I take people into the studio, the last thing I want to do is waste anybody's time or money and time is money in our industry. And so, you know, I always get demos from the band. I don't care if it's from a band rehearsal, you know, just so that I can get familiar with their songs and do my homework. And, you know, as an engineer, like part of our job is driving 
the session and making sure that it's organized, making sure we have the plan, knowing how we're going to mic things up. Like there's a whole process that happens that's on the flip side of the music side of it. And when you, when you subtract that team player, you've got to now come up with that. And so I think making sure that you've accounted for that is a big piece of it. Yeah. So yeah, that's those those are all very good things. Yeah, rehearsing in advance and, and just also kind of taking it as seriously as you would if you were in in that environment. That really does help. When it comes to recording, uh, I think there's two choices that you could take, uh, and you can you can tell me if you prefer one or the other. But one is to always do complete takes and at the same tempo and then you can line them up and uh, like i know it's very easy to do in logic you can probably do it in most daws line them up and then select you know what they call comping take comping your takes select you know the the sections you like the best of each tape you know like measure five you like take three better and then measure six you like take one and so that's one way to do that and you can you know, you there. There's videos that show you about like crossfading and things that kind of make it really simple. But I think Logic does that by default. <laughs> you know, just for an example. But the other thing is that you can also do is what you call punch in recording. Like if you completely mess up and it just derails you, you can't finish a take. I guess you could start over, but you can also like hear what you recorded up to a point and even play along with it but it'll start recording at a certain point. So like, are there, is there a way that you'd recommend that's probably more beneficial for most of the musicians you work with? Yeah, I think sometimes again, because you're wearing multiple hats, it can sometimes be hard to like make that call yourself. Um, if I'm in a session and I'm running the recording and something is just like, especially if it's like a technical thing or some, you know, like we clipped or something like that, obviously stop, like, cause you can't use it. Um, or, you know, the signal's too low. And so, you know, it's, you're going to have to boost it so much or bringing up a bunch of noise with it or whatever. Um, or maybe, you know, you didn't quite get your settings in a good place before starting to record. Um, those are reasons to kind of like scrap that start again, you know, or you just kind of get off on a bad foot. Um, and I just don't even save those, you know, just undo start again um get our mind straight and 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 move forward um that being said anytime i do vocals i always get multiple takes um and sometimes it may be uh, one or two passes uh, or two or three passes of like the whole song but then there may be some areas where i get multiple takes of just that area so then i can comp the best of that component especially if it's like a really challenging spot you know where maybe they try a couple of different things and and you want to kind of pick the best of or whichever one kind of that that that's the right one you know um so sometimes like you know different courses or bridges and stuff like that i might get a few more passes but too many you know then you got a lot more to dig through later so it's still better to get quality over quantity anytime um but i do like to at least have a couple of options to sort of um have that ability to make those decisions after the fact right now uh one of the things that uh that i was taught in school and i assume this is still the case is uh whenever possible especially because it's so easy to manipulate sound digitally um you can add anything you want to sound but you it's harder to take it away so it's not a good idea like you know 
I, I think before I had digital gear, people always said, you know, record your demos, go to, go to, go to a bathroom, go to the bathtub and, you know, make your recordings there and all that to get that natural reverb and, and all that. But if you did that, you, and you decided, well, I don't like that reverb. You're kind of stuck. You can't really take it out. So getting the driest, most, you know, most pure sound that you can as a recording signal. And then, you know, probably well, this might be a good transition to plugins. You know, it might be what we would talk about next. So, um, and, and I know that if we, if we really do deep dive into plugins, this is going to be a really long episode. So we probably won't. Um, I, I guess, I'll, I'll kind of just summarize the way I understand plugins of what you can do. That the the two that that I hear are the most common, that like some of the biggest in terms of what you want to use is EQ and compression. In terms of uh, just changing the shape of the sound and also the dynamics, but then you have all of you know what we'd call effects. And guitarists are probably you know you know all of these because you have pedals for them, <laughs> but like reverb, chorus, delay. Um, and then we can get into things like gate and, and so forth. It's, it's, there's a lot of aspects, things that you can change about the sound. A lot of your DAWs come with stock plugins. Now, as you get, you know, if you're trying, if you're going for more professional approach, I know that every engineer has their own preferred plugins that they would like to use, you know, instead for, for a lot of them. But, you know, what are, if, if, if you're just trying to, uh, you know, I'll stick with the trumpet, your trumpet, and you're just trying to, you know, send a demo that maybe you've blended with uh, someone doing a, a MIDI accompaniment or something like that. You've recorded in a dry room. What are what are some things that you can do fairly simply to make it sound a little bit better, assuming that you haven't done any clipping or distortion or anything like that? Um, real quick, I do want to loop back to your bathroom thing because oh, I think okay, that's, sure. <laughs> a, that's an important note um yeah but so room acoustics does play a big part in this and you're exactly right if you record your room in a room you are recording whatever the sound is of that room um and there's things you can do to isolate it a little bit more but whatever your room sounds like is that's going to be what's in your recording and you're right you can't really take that out yeah um, and just just from a podcasting perspective it's like because uh, I listen to other podcasts and it's so hard when someone usually usually a guest is recording without earphones, or, you know, or a close microphone and they have high ceilings and you just hear it's just kind of a it's almost hard to listen to. <laughs> it's it's just a mm -hmm. big echoey mess sometimes. So, yes, yep. anything you're recording. <laughs> and just another quick note on that live rooms in a real studio are actually like there's a whole lot of design that goes into those. Um, and it's not just about non-parallel surfaces and the, the usual, you know, reflections and things like that, but also has to do with the actual size of the room. And if you ever walk into one, you'll notice they're not dead. They're actually not fully mm -hmm. dry. They are called a live room for a reason. And so they have a, a natural decay to them that are, is pleasant to us. Um, and so when you put instruments in there, it kind of warms them up a little bit. And so when you're trying to record in a not ideal space, mm -hmm. you know, you, you have to think 
and it depends what you're recording, you know, like drums, you wouldn't want them to be in a completely dry space. Um, certain acoustic instruments don't sound really good in a dry space, but if that's, if that's your option, then, then yes, we can then apply some, um, effects on the back end to try and, and warm that up. Um, I think uh, just talking about plugins real quick, um, again, not trying to go too technical, but basically you have two different types of processing you have um what we call dynamics processing which means it is it is a, everything from eq to compression mm -hmm. um uh limiting um gating things like that are based on dynamics they're based on the lows and the highs and then you have what we call time-based effects which is everything um that kind of comes after the sound so the reverb the delay um, echo, chorus, things like that. And it's where the original source will already have happened. And then there's a proportion of that that's now distributed through one of these types of effects. Um, and so you have to kind of separate those as two different, because we talked about signal flow earlier, because they fall in two different places along that signal flow path. And you need to know which ones affect the other ones because compression will affect your reverb and EQ will affect your delay and those kinds of things. Um, so yeah, uh, and you mentioned frequency spectrum earlier. Um, and you know, that's where engineers, uh, you know, we have to memorize the frequency spectrum. And if you're a musician, it's so much easier because you can relate a lot of that, most all, pretty much all of it to, um, notes on a piano or yeah. you know harmonics we know about harmonics we know about um you know uh, uh pitches and things like that and and so if you have that foundation then it makes it a lot easier to understand how to eq something so right something so get I, me back on track <laughs> yes oh no no uh something that um that i put in kind of like preliminary notes uh that i that i wanted to talk about but they're just but it needs its own episode is audio engineering ear training because as a musician i think i think my ear is re really very good i uh and it doesn't it doesn't hurt that i have what people would call perfect pitch but i know all of my intervals all my chords you play a scale i know what it is um i can listen to a recording and if it's not super complicated i can pretty easily transcribe it um but that does not prepare me for what the what you have to listen for as a studio engineer. Uh, sometimes I'll hear people demonstrate like different EQ patterns, and I honestly don't hear the difference. I don't know what I'm listening for. Um, you know, um, compression, you know, if I make it obvious, I can I can hear it. Reverbs are very easy, you know, to kind of hear the difference between before and after. And of course, the nice thing about like, uh, you know, a lot of these DAWs is that you can you can hear before and after by just uh, muting or bypassing the effect. So you can quickly compare. But, you know, just the the types of things that that you're that you're listening for and you're scrutinizing it, was well, kind of like a your musical ear training until someone has pointed out what you're supposed to hear and what it's supposed to sound like. It can be a little bit overwhelming, but, and, and I, I know that there's at least a few apps out there to kind of help with that, but probably 
working with an engineer and just kind of getting them to talk about what they're doing is maybe the best way <laughs> of going about that. But yeah. I, just, I just want to throw that out there. This, if you're if you're listening to this and say, "Well, I've got a pretty good ear," because I because I think I can make that claim. I have about as good an ear as any musician I've met. But it, you're not quite as prepared as you think <laughs> when it comes. Well, to... Well, and an ear for music is not necessarily the same as an ear for engineering. Although there's a lot of it helps, you yeah. know. But but there's still um, there's a lot of frequencies that we don't play in our western you know yeah. chord structures that happen you know um and and so there's all kinds of i think somebody posted a, a video recently and they it was a musician and yeah. a piano player and it was a, a electronic toothbrush and they they were um they were listening to the pitch and to them it sounded off and they went and played um i forget if it was like an a or a c um, but but they played the note and it was just a hair detuned from from that pitch and mm -hmm. it was really funny because it was like it he he noted that he it, it, I guess bothered him and it's like there's a lot of other frequencies out there besides the pitches that we're used to hearing so yeah um, but yeah so we talked about you know, just some of the things that you can add, but, but I was just saying like, if uh, just to use a singular example, let's just use trumpet, you know, you've recorded, let's say it's been kind of a dry room, you know, uh, what might they consider to just kind of clean up the sound a little bit? Um, well, so the way that I use EQ primarily, uh, assuming you were able to use the right tool, the right microphone yeah. for the right job, um then really eq comes and and creating the right um environment using the right mic techniques if all of those things are followed then really all you're using eq for is is finesse it's it's the icing and so i use eq to correct minor minor things at least that's the idea in a recording studio sometimes in live sound Right. It's a different ball game, but in the recording studio, you're going in and you're finding what I call problem frequencies. And mm -hmm. so you find where something, you know, maybe a, a, a certain trumpet, there's certain nodes that build up a little bit in a, in a particular pitch that they play. And so you find that and you kind of notch it out just a little bit um, so that there's a more even distribution of all of those frequencies. And, um, understanding that instruments have timbre yep. and every instrument is not playing one frequency they're playing lots of frequencies with every note they play and so when you're going in and you know editing that you have to realize i'm not just editing the root note but i'm also having to edit all the harmonics which play at different amplitudes different volumes depending on the instrument and so that's where it gets really, really um, technical, I guess, uh, on that front. But I, I use EQ that way. Um, uh, compression lightly um, in some in in acoustical instruments. Um, I try to keep that as open and as dynamic as possible. Which you know, you just have to be careful with digital because obviously digital isn't very forgiving when you yeah. are uh, louder than its threshold. Um, but, but, you know, some light dynamic limiting, 
um, and then uh, being able to put some natural decay on the back end. So something yeah. that makes it feel like you're playing in, you know, a hall or a live room. Um, I think, you know, and depending on what kind of reverb you put on it, it's going to make it sound and how heavy you put on it. It's going to change sort of how you feel about the space that it's the space you're creating. Um, and I think that's the thing with reverb. You just got to, you got to imagine it as if it's, you are creating a room it, with it. Yeah. And I think uh, a lot of your reverbs come up with, they have templates like small room, medium room, hall, you know, <laughs> a lot of things you can play around with. Um, so uh, I'm going to, I'm going to relay the best way that I, that I learned about what compression actually does. And so, cause, so I assume that a lot of my listeners, you know, know something about classical music and maybe you've tried to listen to it in the car. And if you, you know, if you're lucky enough to live in an area where you have classical music on the radio, if you listen to it, you'll notice that you could put it at one volume and it's fine. But if you go find that same recording on a CD, you know, or even stream it from, you know, whatever, you know, Apple music or whatever into your, into your car, you'll notice it's like, it gets so soft and you have to turn it up and then it's way too loud and you got to turn it back down. And what I was told is that like your radio stations, you know, like, especially like your classical radio puts a massive amount of compression, much more than they would on an album. And that, and what compression does is it squishes the dynamic range closer together so that your soft sounds are not so different, you know, not such a wide range. So, but, you know, with, with compression, with over compression comes, you know, the, if you want dynamic diversity in your recording. So I think that's kind of a fine line, but I just wanted to offer <laughs> that just from my own experience. Uh, you don't get that with so many other genres because a lot of like your pop genres are kind of, you know, more than half the time, one volume or, you know, not, not a whole lot of difference, you know, I guess the last thing, you know, just as far as basics, I know we're just scratching the surface of this and, you know, and I hope that I'll encourage some of you listening to go, you know, you know, check out each single thing we talk about just in more detail, you know, and again, you know, find an engineer, you know, and talk with them or when you're recording, you know, uh, maybe not so much while you're recording <laughs> before or after you're recording, you know, chat, chat with your engineer about, you know, like, what are some of the things you do? Like if they put a mic in a certain place, maybe just ask them, why did you do that? You know, I think I'm sure there's some that might say trade secrets don't want to talk about it, but I think most will be willing to, you know, expound on what they're doing uh, to the point. But I guess the last thing is you've made a recording, you're satisfied with it. Now you've got to deliver it to someone. And so we get to what we call bouncing, you know, so, and there's different formats and, uh, you know, maybe we could just kind of go through those. I mean, the ones that come to mind is you have a wave file, you have MP3, I think Apple uses AIFF. Um, I think that's their format, but just maybe give us a little introduction to format types. Okay. Um, well, wave files is the standard. Um, and in fact, we're kind of in, we, we've we come from what we call red book standard, which is 16-bit, 44, 44K, 44.1K sample rate. Um, and so those um, are your sort of go-to sample rate and bit depth. We're getting more into the HD side of this um, with 
higher bit depth up to 24 bit and um, a 48K sample rate. And that's becoming a little bit more um, uh, a usable format. 16441 was a CD only, like that's what it had to be to be on a CD mm -hmm. um, for digital technology. Uh, MP3, what an MP3 does just to help people understand, because it's convenient, right? It's a smaller yeah. amount of information. Um, it's easier to email. It's easier to deal with. But what you're missing is a lot of information. And so I run into this a lot where people will send me MP3s and want me to do something with it and make it sound better. And there's not a whole lot I can do because it's like, it's like giving a low resolution picture to somebody and saying, make it better, but like you can't, you don't have the pixels to actually make it better resolution. Yeah. Does that make sense? So like, so MP3 becomes this, like it, it is a purposefully loss uh, of information and it, it subtracts what it thinks you don't really need, you know, um, and a lot of it is in, you know, you miss a lot of low end, you miss a lot of high definition, and you're kind of left with just some like core content, which if all you're doing is listening to it on your phone or, you know, whatever on the computer, not a big deal. Um, but if you're trying to actually use it for, you know, a show or in a, in a major recording that people are going to listen to on all different types of um, speakers and headphones, you're, you're missing, you're giving them a low, uh, quality piece of, of art, basically. Um, yeah, I use so that, MP3s yeah. for, you know, if someone says, I like to hear just a sample for your music, I'll send them an MP3, but if they're going to use it in a performance or recording, I'll, you know, normally send them a wave file. And now some things like podcasting, um, Podcasting will not accept wave wave files except AIFF or to accept MP3. Uh, but then... and AIFF is is still a lossless type of tech. So so AIFF is okay. I think um, it's Apple's, what, right. Yeah, it's an it's a codec that um, it allows you to embed information um, and some other things. But yeah, so so that's still an okay uh, format. But like when you bounce out uh, Pro Tools. I think you have all of those options, but it's still sort of the, the normal go-to is, is a WAV file. Right. Um, and like for podcasts, you don't, have, you don't have as much content, right? Because our yeah. voices are only, there's only so much going on. Whereas a band's recording where you have all the stuff happening all at the same time, all across the whole frequency spectrum, that's a lot of information that we're basically like doing this to. And it's one thing to do it to two voices. It's another thing to do it to a full band recording. Yeah, unless they've changed in the last couple of years, Spotify will only take MP3 for the podcast. Now, it's not true for the music, but, you know, so so if you're like me and you want your podcast everywhere, just MP3 is what you'll do with that. But when it comes to music, of course, yeah, you want one of the lossless. Um, now, you kind of alluded to sample rate. We didn't even talk about that. Um, the way I understand that is, is, of course, it matters. But in a nutshell, your recording project is probably already set to a default and you can change it. But what what are, basically record everything the same way, like if it's if you start 44.1 or if you start 48 or whatever, just you do the same thing. 
And then like, I know that Logic, if, if someone, because I had to do this with a with a, when a soundtrack album, I think I recorded it at 48. For, but when I wanted to upload it through CD Baby or whatever, uh, or Spotify, I don't remember, but they wanted 44.1. And I just had to convert all the files, you know. So it's like you can go back and you can change it. I, you know, it'll probably change the, the overall quality a little bit, but... But that's something I I think it's kind of like if if you can kind of know what's expected in advance, that's fine. But for demos, I've heard there's not a whole lot of difference between 44.1 and 48. And but maybe it's in the yeah, it's in the high end. So just to give a really quick reason behind it, yeah, it's it's how many pictures you're taking of the waveform. So if you can imagine a waveform traveling in the air, so it's how many times you're taking a picture. So it's 44,100 times a second, which is pretty fast. Yeah. Um, 48 is 48,000 uh, per second. And so when you, what, what it changes is the upper frequencies. And the reason is high frequencies are faster. Yeah. So they're, whereas with low frequencies are like this. So you can imagine you can get away with less pictures of a low frequency wave the high frequency waves if you don't have enough pictures you're missing a lot more content that the computer isn't able to really like piece back together or your your, you know your ears aren't able to be like oh yeah um so the the difference is if you have like a lot of cymbals or guitar upper guitar string harmonics violin things like that is where you'll really notice that 44 one to, to 48k difference yeah. um more so than anything else um but anyhow if i if i'm doing something like a big project i always ask you know where's this going next is it, is it going to a mastering engineer is it something that i'm giving back to you to put on youtube like what what's our destination um there are a lot of tools like you were saying you can um do conversions a lot easier now um, but it's really important to know your source. I did all these virtual choir things uh, during the pandemic, and I had people sending me stuff at, you're talking about default uh, sample rates. Well, some of these Apple HD ones are now 48K. So I was yeah. getting some in 48 and some in 44.1, and they won't line up without right. doing that conversion. And yeah. so I had to have 100 different singers, and I'm having to go through each one of those to actually make sure that they all land in the same sample rate and because they're not otherwise they're not sampling at the same time and they they start to to spread out and all of a sudden they're not singing the same line at the same time right so right uh and i know there's some things we didn't talk about like latency and so forth um <laughs> that, there's, there's so much you can get into and you know we'll probably have to revisit this down the road but I think just kind of if I was to summarize just in a nutshell, um, and, and also we didn't talk about like, you got to hear your sound. I'm wearing headphones and really that's all you need is just, um, you know, a decent pair of headphones, you know, I, but headphones are like microphones, you know, you can go get something really cheap, um, but spending a little bit more money, you'll hear a little bit more realistic of a sound. Um, and for a long time, I resisted getting good quality studio monitors, but I've got, you know, some I guess they're kind of home studio standard KRK, <laughs> you know, digital monitors back there. Um, the the thing about studio monitors as opposed to, because I used to think I had some Bose speakers, you know, just like, why not use that? Uh, and, and it wasn't until someone explained to me, 
that's adding things to your sound that you didn't you didn't put in there so like you might say wow this has a lot of bass but it doesn't really it's just your speakers have a lot of bass so you um you know my my wife has done a lot of quilting in past and she has a thing called an ot light which is designed to show you the way what it looks like in natural light because if you don't get that right uh you can think something looks a certain way and then someone takes it home and it looks differently and so you kind of have to do that i know that um you know good good engineers will test it with headphones they'll test it in with studio monitors and so forth but i think if you're on a budget maybe i i think i might be more inclined to invest in a good set of headphones especially well first of all if you're at home you may not want to blast your project <laughs> around you may not be able to do that especially if you're in an apartment you probably can't do that so that might be if you had to pick one or the other probably headphones yeah i always i always encourage um our students particularly i always say get that's one of the thing, requirements actually is that they get professional headphones and they're not allowed to get a pair that color the sound so not a pair of beats or something like that that actually like you said it enhances the sound which on the consumer end fine but when you're trying to actually like have critical listening it doesn't help you at all um the other thing with headphones is it takes you it isolates you from your environment so if you're if you don't have a good listening environment um and you put studio monitors in there they can also give you a false sense of certain um, sounds that aren't actually there uh, because the room creates sort of the buildup of those frequencies. So um, good pair of headphones for sure. Um, and, you know, if you're able to then get some, even if you don't have studio monitors, like you were saying, like go, like after you mix something, take it into your living room, play it on your home stereo, take it and put it in your car, play it on your car, put some Apple AirPods in, you know, do something um, that other consumers of your music will do. And yeah. I, I find it incredibly important to listen to it on the crappiest version of whatever it is, you know, yeah. other people are going to listen to you, listen to it on your computer speakers, because music sounds very different coming out of computer laptop speakers, um, and then listen to it on really good quality um but also like cars are a big one right now that put a lot of low-end enhancement um and and that is not natural at all and if you've overcompensated for that you will know very quickly uh, yeah. as soon as you put it in the car <laughs> right. yeah so great great point but uh so so just kind of returning to summary so start off with a microphone and some and headphones or good studio monitors you want to you know, computer adequate to your recording needs. Uh, you know, actually with, of course, with a microphone comes, you know, uh, something to put the microphone on like a stand <laughs> um, and so forth. So you need the access accessories, um, but a microphone appropriate for your instrument, uh, computer appropriate for your task, and then, you know, something to record it to. And then again, you probably have, you know, if you've, gotten a doll you probably have sufficient plugins for for your needs just to get started with some demos and and all that um and of course or if you're doing podcasting or voiceover work or something like that there's a lot of reasons to just have recording technology so this is uh you know one-on-one topic to a very vast world um i guess the last thing is just um anything you'd like to promote like if you if there's any live shows that you're that you're doing coming up or uh you know maybe something about your recording studios where can people reach out to ask you about your work or see if you're available sure um 
Well, so I, I, I do teach at Gopher Tech Community College um, in the entertainment technology program. So I do teach recording and acoustics and uh, also some of the music business classes. So certainly feel free to check me out there. Um, I'm in the process of um, outfitting my studio to be um, an immersive studio so I can do um, uh, sort of the seven point uh, 1.4 uh, immersive technology which is sort of the three-dimensional uh, spatial audio stuff is that like um, Dolby Atmos mm -hmm. it'll be Dolby Atmos yeah um, and so I'm really excited about that um, so that's in the works right now um, uh, I am doing uh, the symphony next week I'm doing a show in um, Boston this weekend um, so kind of a little bit all over the place but right. um, yeah like uh, I think one of the big things for me is I do a, so much crossover between the studio and live sound. I do a lot of uh, live multi-tracking for people. So after the show, I then take the multi-tracks and mix them down. And then they have sort of a live uh, mix of the, their show that they can sell or use to promote other things or whatever. So if somebody's looking for something like that, um, I have all the gear to to do that pretty easily as well. So. And your recording studios, is it, is it still Sound Lizard? Or... It it is uh, Sound Lizard Productions with two Z's, um, but uh, yes, my website is getting a revamp right now, so hopefully that'll be up soon. But I do have Facebook and um, all the major social medias. So, right, all right. Well, thank you so much for chatting today and just uh, you know getting us started with you know again a very complicated subject, but I think it just gives us something to 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 get started with. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And that's going to wrap up episode number 26. I want to thank you so much for taking time to listen. I know there's thousands, millions of other podcasts that you could listen to, and I'm so honored that you chose this one to listen to right now. If you have any questions, any clarification needed on anything that we said today, feel free to send me a message. And if it's something that you want me to answer here on my podcast in a future episode, feel free to ask that with your voice by going to speakpipe.com slash musician toolkit. You can check out this podcast directly at davidlanemusic.com slash toolkit. Follow me and the podcast on Instagram and TikTok at David Lane Music, on Facebook at David M. Lane Music. You can even follow me on Twitter at David M. Lane Music, but I don't post a whole lot about the podcast there. But if that's where you choose to go, that would be great. If you're watching us on YouTube, please give it a thumbs up and hit that notification bell and subscribe. I'm greatly appreciative of my YouTube crowd. This There is not much to watch here at the moment, but you can also check out the other videos that I offer starting to offer a lot more tutorials for those interested in piano and composition. So go ahead and check that out as well. And if you're not already on YouTube, it's at David Lane Music One. Last but not least, if you are a music teacher or if you, um, if you are a sound engineer for that matter, if you have clients one-on-one -on -one and you want to receive money from them, you want to schedule them, and you want it to be as smooth as possible, check out Fonz. They'll give you a free trial and, and allow you to test out their, their platform and see if that's something that you are interested in. The link for that is in my show notes.
Once again, thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to being back with you with another episode next week.